Thanks for being here. We are in week two of, I don't even know what we're calling, oh, Baywatch. That's what we're calling it, Baywatch. <laughs> I guess that's what the kids are saying these days. I don't know. I'm old. Um, but uh, we're talking about sex and marriage and all that kind of good stuff. And Matt invited me to come and talk about it because obviously I know a lot more than he does. I have three kids. And so I have experienced a lot more of all of those things. Anyway, and so um, I wanted to first tell you a story of one of the best worst first dates that I've ever seen before. I came across this in an article a couple years ago and I wanted to read it to you because if you've ever been on a, a bad date before, this will make you feel a little bit better about your worst date. Okay, here's what, it, here's what is written by a woman. Here's what she says. She says, like everything in life, and by the way, this is in a magazine, all right? So if you think, wow, Cody, you have about the sense of humor of a junior hire, I would say you are 100% correct, all right? So uh, like everything in life, farts have a time and place. However, I never realized that in the wrong time and place, flatulence had enough power to alter my course in history. Well, it can if it's the third date with the man of your dreams, and if it makes his eyes burn, it <laughs> if God destined us to be together, I was one SBD away from foiling his plans. It was about five years ago, I was trying to lose a few pounds, so I was staying away from carbs. That's when I met Rob. On our first date, he picked me up in a Cobra Mustang, and his pathetic attempt to win me over in a car totally worked, which she has low standards. Uh, I'm not shallow, but since I spent most of my 20s picking up men because I didn't want my hair to frizz in their non-air-conditioned jalopies on three wheels and 50-year-old spares, I welcomed his fancy sports car with open arms. We arrived at the restaurant and Rob was ordering food I hadn't allowed myself to eat in years. I didn't want to be that girl, so I ate, drank, and oh, was I merry. Later, we shopped a bit. Rob surprised me by buying an expensive pair of shoes that he caught me eyeing. Was this love? That's when it happened. Gas strikes in two different ways, uncontrollable toots or sharp shooting pains that feel like you're dying. I thought I was dying. Not to make a scene, I told Rob I suddenly wasn't feeling well and probably needed to head home. On his way home in his Cobra, he tried to hold my hand and ask me lots of questions, but I wasn't having any of it. The pain was so bad, it felt like I was being stabbed with a bunch of tiny forks. Then I realized, my God help me. I have a horrendous fart on deck. I'm in trouble, big trouble. The more I held it in, the more pain would shoot through my stomach and down my legs. I was even having to raise myself off the seat, gripping onto the door and the dashboard. Seriously, you need to hurry. I'm in a lot of pain, I managed to say through gritted teeth. Wow, it's that bad? What's wrong? Do I need to take you to the hospital? How do you tell a man that you just started dating the reason you're writhing in pain is because you have to fart? Well, you can either tell him or, like me, let the fart speak for itself. <laughs> I just, oh, God. Okay, people hear me. There was nothing I could do. As impressive as I am was sphincter control. This was out of my hands. Slowly it eked out. The more I tried to stop it, the more it forced its way through the door. However, to my pleasant surprise, there was no sound. I sat silently, sweat accumulating above my lip. Okay, maybe I got away with it. Maybe I'm home free. Then it hit me. Not an idea, a cloud. 
a horrific fart cloud, not in a, am I smelling something sort of way, more like a, is someone dead and rotting in your trunk and am I in hell sort of way? Suddenly I panicked, roll down the windows, I screamed. Yes, I literally screamed like it was a horror movie. What, why, Rob asked, starting to freak out because I was freaking out. I can't roll down the windows, I'm like, I'll lock it! What's going on, Rob yelled back to me, why are you? Then it hit him. I could see it in his eyes. Was it surprise, horror? Water started to accumulate at the base of his eyelids. Oh my God, I can taste it, he screamed. Roll down the windows, as I screamed. The tooth started flooding out uncontrollably. I scratched and clawed at the windows like I was being kidnapped. Rob, Rob, unable to see either by the fart cloud or the panic, kept turning on the windshield wipers instead of unlocking the windows. It was chaos. We were acting like we were under siege by gunfire, but we were under siege, all right. It was not gunfire, it was toots. Finally, he was able to hit the right control and he rolled down the windows. We both gulped in fresh air. I was horrified, yet happy to be alive. Then I remembered I just farted on the man of my dreams. I sort of wished I was dead. We sat silently for the rest of the way home. Although shooting pains had subsided, I now desperately needed to use the bathroom in an urgent, explosive kind of way. He pulled up to my apartment, and before he could come to a stop, I had already jumped out. Okay, thanks for dinner. Sorry about the fart. Love the shoes. And ran into my apartment like I was running from the cops. I burst through the front door, ran straight to the bathroom, where I was finally able to unleash and make noises that no one should ever, ever hear coming from another person. Then I heard it, Rob's voice, right outside my bathroom door. Uh, Anna, you left your shoes in my car and your, your front door was open. Where do you want me to put them? Get away from the door! I screamed like Reagan from The Exorcist. Okay, I'm sorry, are you okay? Toot, toot, splatter, ungodly noise. I'm fine, Rob, just leave the shoes there. I'll call you later. Oh, okay, sure. Uh, uh, I'm fine, just get away from the door. This man, I mean, I love him, but take a freaking hint. Finally, I heard the front door shut. The Cobra engine zoom away. I thought that would, it would be the last that I hear from him. I didn't think it was possible to ever see a man again after he screams he can taste your fart after knowing you for only 48 hours. But to my surprise, I did. A couple days later, actually, now we're married and he's lying on the couch while I type this. See, ladies, you've been going about it all wrong. You want to get married, you got to fart in front of him, you know? That's the key to success. Uh, so uh, I, I love hearing horrible first date stories. I actually have a lot of them, so I'll be sharing them in the coming weeks. But here's what I wanted to do. is um, Today and for the next few weeks, I wanted to address probably the most uh, heated topic that we have in a culture, which is sex and sexuality and marriage and dating. And obviously it's a very relevant topic for this age group because a lot of you guys uh, are dating, thinking about marriage, or maybe you're thinking, I never want to be married. You're trying to make those decisions. And so I want to talk about uh, for this week and next week, what the purpose of these things are. Because if there is a purpose to sex and sexuality and marriage, and there's some kind of design and way that it's supposed to be used, we should, we should find that out. Because if we use it incorrectly, that means that we're either going to get a lesser version of it, or there may be some kind of consequences if it's used wrong. And so I want to talk about what those purposes are, and we're going to start that discussion today and, and hopefully finish it up next week. But the question I want to ask is this, where did sex, sexuality, and marriage come come from. Now, if we were to look at culture, culture has a view that those things are decided by us, okay? So sex, sexuality, and marriage, those are things that we have decided. Those are things that we can decide how they are used and what they are for. And so if you were to look at marriage, uh, marriage is, a, is in, at least in a popular cultural view, is seen as a 
cultural convention, a, a, a human invention, an institution that we have created. And so because we have created the institution of marriage, and we can maybe track back historically and come up with explanations of why we have, because uh, women needed to be married in order to be kept safe and things like that. Um, because we have created the institution of marriage, we get to decide what it looks like. And so you have seen this in the last couple of years. If we have, ch we have changed the definition of marriage pretty dramatically. Whether you are for or against that, we can discuss on another day. But it is very clear that we as a culture have decided we have the authority to, 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 to describe and to define what marriage is. And so we've said marriage is, and then we've now drawn new lines. Before it was a man and a woman. Now it can be a man and a man, a woman and a woman. And there's even disputes happening, um, not quite on a popular level yet, but it should be able to be anything that you define it as. And so one of the disputes is, I should be able to marry a family member. Now, that sounds initially really gross. It sounds weird, which it is. But uh, the reason is because, well, I'm not going to get married. And so I would like to marry my sibling because there's tax benefits to it. And so why shouldn't I be able to marry my sibling? In fact, there's one where a stepfather and, no, it was a father and a daughter. They wanted to get married. Well, why shouldn't I be able to? As long as we don't have kids, what's harming anybody? And so there's different arguments trying to decide, well, how are we going to define what marriage is? Now, the same discussion is happening about sex and sexuality. Well, how do we decide what gender is? Who gets to decide? Do we get to define what gender is? Is it something that we get to decide personally? Or is there something outside of us that defines marriage? marriage and sex and sexuality, gender, all those big topics. And so this isn't really like a light subject, right? This is a pretty big subject, but it's a very important one because the one, it is incredibly relevant within our culture, but the other is it's incredibly personal is these are things that are going to dramatically affect our life. It's going to change the trajectory of our life and it could end up uh, setting us up for some failures or some successes, depending on where um, we land. And so um, if you were to look at society's purpose for marriage, I think it could be simply defined as for personal satisfaction, right? In fact, everything that we look at from a cultural perspective, the point of life is personal satisfaction. I just want to be happy. If you were to stop somebody on the street and say, hey, what do you think the purpose of life is? You know what they would say? They would say, happiness. I want to be happy because all of life is pointing towards me wanting to be happy, personal satisfaction. And so when you start with the assumption that life is all about being happy, personal satisfaction, then all the other things are going to align and point towards that goal, personal satisfaction. And this is true of marriage and sex and sexuality, is if I think the goal of my life is personal satisfaction, then my marriage better be heading towards that goal. I better be happy in this marriage. And if I'm not happy in this marriage, you better believe I'm getting out of this marriage and finding one that makes me happy. Sex. Sex is about making me happy. My body is about personal uh, satisfaction. I had to ask, I heard this song on the radio, and so I had to ask some young adults, um, and I can't remember even now how to pronounce this, but uh, tovlo, tov, tovla, tovla, la, tovlo, is that tovlo? Is that how you pronounce this artist, if you can call it that? You, don't pretend like you don't know who I'm talking about. You're like, no. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I just listen to Christian music. I'm not sure what you're saying. <laughs> anyway, I heard this song, and there was this line that caught my attention, because here's what she says. And it's a pretty gnarly song, and I was like, whoa, this girl is, whoa, she's out there. But here's one line that I thought she doesn't understand, that she is making a huge philosophical statement. Um, here's what it says. It says, oh, baby, make them bodies. We just use them bodies for fun. Let's use them up till every little piece is gone. 
So what she's saying here is, look, my body is even for personal uh, satisfaction. I want to use this up as much as I can, whether I use it or abuse it, whatever I have to do, I want to experience pleasure. And so in this context, she's talking about sex. And she's like, look, my body is just another way for me to have satisfaction. Now, this is the popular worldview. This is what culture is telling us. And if you look at marketing, you look at movies, you look at songs, this is what we are constantly being told. Life is about happiness and personal satisfaction. And so every arena of your life should align with that goal. But the scripture says, well, that's actually not true. In fact, that's in direct conflict with what the Bible says. The Bible says that these things are not decided. These things are discovered. Sex, sexuality, gender, and marriage are all things that are discovered. The big picture is um, we don't get to decide what these things are. These things have been created in such a way that they need to be used appropriately if they're going to be used correctly, and we're going to avoid regrets, and we're going to avoid some bad habits and some destruction. And so the scripture says that all of these things have to be discovered. I'm going to give you five purposes for these things, all right? We're only going to get to a couple of them tonight. We'll talk about the rest hopefully next week. Here's the five purposes of sex and marriage. Partnership, pleasure, procreation, prospering, and personal sanctification, which is a big word, but it really just means making more like Jesus, all right? So let me say those again. Partnership, pleasure, procreation, prospering, and personal sanctification. So let's start with the first one, partnership. If we go back to the very beginning of scripture and we look into the book of Genesis, um, we see God's creation. Now, if you're not a church person and you're like, oh my goodness, I knew it. They were going to tell me that, you know, the the earth is only 6,000 years old and it was made in seven days. And guess what? I've been to science class. I know that's ridiculous. Um, Time out. You can believe a a ton of different things. So you can believe that it's billions of years old. I personally do. And that was created through kind of a process and all that kind of stuff. But don't get tied up in that. All right. Because the story of Genesis is all about who created and why he created. It's not about how he created. Okay, they didn't have modern science back then. This is thousands of years ago when this was written. And so it's trying to give us an insight into, and so something that people can relate to through the ages, of who created this and, how he, and why he created it. So anyway, Genesis 1.26 says, says this. It says, let us make mankind in our image. Now, if you back up a little bit, all of creation, God has created different things. The stars, sun, moon, planets, animals, all that kind of good stuff. And before the creation, all these statements were singular, that God created, that God created. But then we get to man, and it goes plural. It says that, um, it says, let us make mankind in our our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so it goes from singular to plural, which is really interesting when, when God makes man, because there's something specific and, 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 and intentional about man and about God and how they relate to one another. So this last, uh, was, I think it was like three weeks ago, um, I was working out in the garage and I was doing some woodworking or whatever, and I constantly see Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses walking in my neighborhood, and they never come to my house. I think I'm on a blacklist somewhere. And so I'm sitting in the garage, and I see him scrolling up and down the street. I'm like, oh, please come to my house right now. Like, I, please tell me like that I need to know Jesus. I would love for you to tell me that. And so um, they're walking by the house, and I kind of just like, hey, <laughs> hey, and they kind of, they stop because, they, you know, they kind of have to. And so 
I go, what are you guys, what's up? What are you guys doing? Like, oh, do you want to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm like, yes, I do. Come on in. Welcome. <laughs> you know, like, we're going to have a party. This is going to be fantastic. And so we sit down, and they're, they're kind of giving me their spiel. And, and I'm not making fun of them. They, I, you know what? I even told them, I said, you guys are zealous. You guys are out here. You guys are trying to, to uh, win people to your faith. And I admire that. I, you know, but I got to be honest, I'm a Christian, and I don't agree with some of the stuff that you believe. And they go, oh, okay, well, tell us about that because we're Christians too. And I said, here we go. Listen to this. And so we started to jump into different passages and discuss different things where I'm like, okay, well, um, do you believe this? And it's like, yeah, okay. Who do you believe Jesus was? And like, well, Jesus was created by God. And I said, no, okay, we're going to have a problem with that. So we started jumping into these. And so I tried to explain to him, like, here's what Christians have believed historically. And here's why and we believe three, you know, God is three in one and all that kind of stuff, Trinity. And, you know, we got into a little bit deeper theology. But here's the point, is we got to this one place where uh, we went through all the scriptures, and I asked him this question. I said, do you believe that God is love? He says, oh yeah, of course, of course. It's, it's, in the, it's in the Bible. I said, great. I said, but you believe that God is just one person, not three people in, in one Godhead, but one person. Yes. I said, how did love exist prior to him creating anything? He goes, well, what do you mean? I said, from what I understand about love is love has to be taken place in relationship because love is other directed. And so how do you have the existence of love prior to creation of anyone else besides God? And he scratched his head and he's like, yeah, my group's leaving. I got to go, uh, whatever. And I said, well, oh, okay, well, you want to come back? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'll come back next Tuesday. I haven't seen him since, but, um, the question that I posed to him is one that I think is answered here in this, this scripture, is that the reason why love exists is because there's three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they have been in community in the Godhead for eternity past. Now, this is deep theology. I get this. You're going, what? That doesn't even make sense. I don't know. You'll have to wrestle with it. But um, the reason why this is important is because it gives us insight into our creation as well. When God starts talking in the plural, we created us, our image, he's going to reveal himself um, in the next creation because we know that he doesn't just stop at Adam. So let me see if I can make sense of this. Genesis 2 continues on. It says this. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so he looks at Adam and he doesn't go, ah, oh, man, I messed up. You know, like, let's scratch this one. Let's try another one. He says, no, this one's good, but it's not finished yet. Because remember, God makes us in his image. So we are image bearers and he is relational. Three people in eternity past in a relationship. And so for us to be alone means that we are incomplete, that we have to be in intimate relationships. God is an intimate God. And so we have to be people who are intimate, no, I don't just mean physically intimate or anything like that. I mean in deep, loving, committed relationships, whatever those look like. And so um, it continues on. It says, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God ca caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. And so God's solution for this incomplete person, Adam, that he created was, I need to make a suitable partner for him. 
Remember, God, relational, you need somebody to be in a relationship with. Now, if we go back to the Trinity, we have three people, and those three people are very distinct from one another. The best way that I can uh, explain this is like a a three-sided prism that's clear. You know, they have three distinct sides, and yet you can see through them, and all of them are interconnected. Well, this is, this is kind of like what God is like. And so he sees Adam and says, all right, um, you're incomplete. You need a partner. And so he creates Eve. Now, let me, uh, this is where, you know, if you are kind of up on cultural issues, this is where things are going to get even more dicey, all right? Because here's what the scripture is saying. The scripture is saying that she is equal in her value, Right? Because we see that they are made of the same substance that um, in the scripture it says the bones of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And it also says that the rib that the Lord God had taken from man. And so they are, they're equal in their value. And, and this, so this, this gives people, humans, worth. All of us are intrinsically valuable. By the way, uh, as a side note, if you were ever in a discussion, and again, we're getting into kind of deeper theology and philosophy, but... One of the issues that our culture is struggling with is how do we justify human value? How do we justify? Why why do we say that people are valuable? Without God in this creation narrative, we can't justify that one person is as valuable as the next. Only when we are made in God's image are we seen as intrinsically valuable. So this affirms that. This explains why we're valuable, but it also says why we are different as men and women. Now, for all of human history... People have known this, that men and women are vastly different from one another. They're equal, and yet they are different. And yet within our cultural context, we see um, that, that we are wrestling with this issue. So the scripture's view is that they complement one another, right? That men and women are equal and yet different because they play different roles. So the most obvious example I can think of is uh, parenting. If you were to look at the way my wife parents and I parent, they're totally different. Now, I'm not saying that you can, do one, you, you can only have one or the other. You gotta have both, but they are so different because when daddy gets home from work, you know what the kids wanna do? They wanna wrestle, right? We're gonna fight. But if mommy gets home and they wanna fight, mommy's gonna go, excuse me? <laughs> I know, I'm cooking dinner, thank you very much, right? Because, because and, and again, those are not specific gender roles. Those are kind of more general, this is how it looks, but it's because we're different. If you ever have kids and kids, and you have one boy and one girl, you cannot believe from day one how different they are from one another. My son is a disaster on a consistent basis. I just go, what is wrong with this child? Is he really ours? Do we have to keep him? People have asked, have you ever thought about adoption? I'm like, yeah, and I know which one I would give up. This one, you know, he's out of his mind. Just kidding, I love him, but they're so different, right? They are completely different from one another. Now, if I were to say this at, let's say, a local college, a secular uh, university, people would be booing me right now. Because the, the, uh, the current uh, belief is that men and women are the same. Not just that they're equal, but that they are the same. There's just some biological differences between them, but other than that, other than the parts that they have, they are the exact same. And see, the scripture says, no, they're not the same. They're totally different. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And all of human history has understood that men and women are totally different from one another, except for our current culture. And so um, the scripture affirms that we are made in his image, that male and female are unique, um, that they are, are, are equal in value, and yet they are totally different in the way that they function. 
And then the next part that we get to is about your favorite and my favorite topic, sex. Here's what it says. In Genesis 2, 24, it says this. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become, and this is the word one flesh, which is also translated as sex. And so whenever I hear people think, oh, you know, Christianity, you're a bunch of prudes, you guys don't like sex. Okay, let's pause and reverse here for a second, because we worship a God that created sex. He wasn't surprised by it. He wasn't up in heaven going, what are the, oh my goodness, what, Adam, get off of her. What are you doing down there? Are they wrestling? Oh my goodness. Oh geez, I can't look. This is horrible, right? No, God created sex. He gets it. He said, this is a beautiful gift. In fact, look at the narrative. He created man and woman in a beautiful place, totally naked. Can you set up more romantic scene? And then he says, go and multiply, be fruitful. Have a great time, you guys. I created this, let's get crazy, you know? Like, I won't look, you guys go do your thing, right? This is the, this is the God of the Bible. It's, he was not surprised by it, he created it. He understood that this is gonna be an incredible gift that he is giving to humanity. But at the same time, when he gave us this incredible gift of sex, he says, now, this is a gift that is fragile. You gotta be careful with this. I created it, it's gonna be beautiful, you're gonna love it, guys, you're gonna wanna do it all the time. It's gonna be fantastic, but you gotta be careful with it. There are specific instructions that I have for this. And if you do it wrong, it's gonna break. If you use it incorrectly, it's gonna break. If you abuse it, you're gonna, you're gonna regret it. And so be really, really careful with it. And of course, in certain contexts, and we're going to talk about what that is, it is a beautiful gift. It's awesome. And yet, it can also be the thing that brings incredible regret and shame into our lives. If I were to have a discussion with you, or let's say that you came up to me afterward and you said, hey, Cody, there's something I need to talk to you about, um, something that I've been carrying around for a long time, and I'm really just, I have a lot of shame and guilt, 100% of the time, it is sex-related. 100% of the time. I have yet to have someone come up to me and go, Cody, they're just, I don't want to say this, but I, there's a, I have an unpaid parking ticket that I have not paid for like six months and I'm really struggling with it and I'm just carrying a lot of guilt. No one has ever done that. No one. It is always something related to sex because sex is fragile. It is something we have to be careful with. If I were going to give him maybe a more uh, poignant example, this is why rape and getting beat up are totally different things. If sex were just physical, it were just an act, it's just something you'll partake in, well, why is rape so much more serious than getting beat up? Well, because there's something sacred, there's something fragile about our sexuality and about sex. And when God gave it to us, he says, okay, you gotta be, you gotta be careful with this. So I'm gonna talk about that in the coming weeks. Let me kind of pull back and let's talk about how God designed sex, how we're supposed to, to use it or where we're supposed to use it, when we're supposed to use it what, it, what it's supposed to look like. How does it operate correctly? And so let me give you a little background. In the Old Testament, um, maybe you're familiar with these things called covenants. God would make covenants with different people in the Old Testament. And what a covenant is, is it's, um, it's kind of like a, a, a contract, but it's a relational and intimate contract. And so God would come to these people. We have people like Abraham, and he would say, all right, I'm going to reveal myself intimately to you. And in this, you're going to make a promise to me, and I'm going to make a promise to you. And it's a contract, but it's an intimacy at the same time. And so he would come into these uh, legally binding, but yet emotionally binding as well, relationships. And um, 
And it was despite their feelings, and here's what he knew about humanity, is he knew that it takes something that is legal and binding in order to create a relationship that's going to last. Because we're, uh, we're, we're pretty easily distracted. I don't know about you, but I could just, woo, 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 three, you know, three times a day, I'm heading in a new direction and things are going on and I changed my mind. And, and God knew that about us. And so he says, okay, I'm gonna create this thing called a covenant and I'm going to have a, a commitment to you and you're gonna be committed to me and we're gonna be in this vulnerable relationship together. And so God does these, uh, creates these different covenants uh, throughout the Old Testament. And, um, and I think that, when he, well, I know that when he created marriage, he said, now this marriage is going to be a covenant. It's not going to be just between me and this person. It's going to be between you two and me. All right. So it's going to be legally binding and yet it's going to be intimate. It's going to be vulnerable because let's be honest, the place in which we can be the most vulnerable and we can feel the most safe is not when we barely know somebody. It's when we know they're going to stick around, when they're going to be here for a while, when they're committed to me and I'm committed to you, then I can open myself up a bit. And so marriage really is about um, a covenant relationship. If you contrast this, what, what, which what culture says, um, sex goes from being a covenant thing to being a consumer thing. The way that our culture views sex is it's kind of like any other consumer good that we have. So like when you're hungry, you go and you get something to eat. When you're horny, you go and you get something, whatever, okay? This is the way that we view sex. Is it something we can consume? It's something we can do just like our bodies are made to be used so we can use one another. And it's all about, again, pointing towards personal satisfaction, I hear people say, well, you know, it's a, it's a natural desire, and as long as I'm safe and I'm smart about it, nobody's getting hurt, nobody's getting any diseases or rashes or anything like that, then it's okay. We, we're all adults here. We're being responsible about it. The problem with this is the consumer relationship is all about performance. When you enter into a relationship that is not covenantal, where we're committed, we're intimate, we're going to do life together, but we are about consumers then you're always going to have to be performing in one way or another because it's all about your feelings. And if my feelings change, then you're going to be out of here. And so I better give you what you want. I better look the way that you want because day to day, if you feel different about me, you can be out of here. Just depends on what kind of day you're having or what kind of week you're having or how our relationship may be going in that moment. And so to be in a consumer relationship versus a covenantal one means that you're always having to perform in one way or another. And you're worried, is there somebody else that's going to come along that's going to be a better version of me and they're going to split and go for them? You can never be safe. You can never be at ease. You can never find peace in those relationships because you're always at risk of it breaking apart. God comes along and he says, okay, you're going to be in this covenantal relationship and this committed, loving, intimate relationship that you're going to be in with one another, um, you're going to have to renew this. So just like the covenantal relationship that God has created through um, Moses or Abraham or anything, uh, or David, when we look at those, he also produced this thing called like a renewal, a covenant renewal ceremony of some sort. And so um, for us as Christians, one of the things that we do, and, and Jesus implemented this because he knows that we forget and we're easily distracted, he says, I want you to do this thing called communion. And communion is going to be a covenant renewal where you're going to stop and you're going to remember, oh yeah, okay, this is why I believe what I believe. And I'm re reminded of the commitment that I've made to Christ and that what he has done for me. And so this is a way for us to remember. 
We do different things like this in our life, right? We have birthday parties, and we do Christmas, and we have, uh, what else do we do? We do uh, uh, anniversaries. I just had one of those. Anniversaries, we do things like that, right? Because we, gotta, we forget. We got we to keep these things on the calendar because we're going to forget. And so we have these covenant renewal uh, exercises and parties and things like that. Well, that's exactly what sex is, or at least one aspect of sex. Sex is a way to renew the covenant that you have made with your spouse. Is hey, um, you know, I have opened myself up to you. Your finances, my finances, uh, I trust you. I've opened myself up emotionally. And so because I have opened myself up in every single way, I also open myself up to you physically. See, it's whole life submission, That's what the covenant renewal is all about. That's what sex was created for, is I am giving you, um, sex is is me giving you a token, uh, my body is what is happening with the rest of my life. It's because I've made myself open and vulnerable and committed to you with everything, I also do that with my body. The problem is, is in our culture, and this is something that we all, I think, um, have struggled with, is I want to only make myself vulnerable to you in certain areas, and that's usually the physical. I'm unwilling to commit to you financially or emotionally or relationally or with my schedule. I'm unwilling to give you those aspects of my life. Instead, I will only give you the physical aspect of my life. And that's because that's where I find the most pleasure. And the problem with this is is that um, you end up being a consumer And that view is selfish. So uh, one of the things that people tell me sometimes is, okay, well, I understand sex is covenant renewal and it's supposed to be in this context and it's about whole life giving and that's just a part of whole life giving. But what if you just really love the person? This is always the pushback that I get. You know, okay, we're not married, but we really, really love each other. I would say that is a very selfish view of sex. Because if sex is about how you feel towards this person, your feelings can change any day of the week. And you're not giving, you're taking. You're not giving your full life to them. You're not committing and and being vulnerable with everything. You're taking the parts that you want and you're leaving the rest. And so this is why um, C.S. Lewis says this, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union, which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. See, sex becomes a way that we can now start feeling better about ourselves. Oh, I'm wanted. I'm needed. People find uh, me pleasurable. And so sex becomes a way for us to, one, puff up our own pride and deal with our insecurities. And for others, it's a way for uh, me to use you and not have to disclose everything to you. Not to have to give you my full life. I can just give you my body. First thing I do whenever I talk to um, somebody who wants me to marry them is I will ask them, okay, now are you two living together? And are you sleeping together? Because here's one of the things that I've learned about sex um, before marriage is obviously the scripture's against it, but there's some real practical stuff that goes along with this because sex becomes one of those things that um, can heal a relationship in the right context or it can be the thing that covers up all the, the, the destructive and, um, and nastiness that's happening within a, a relationship. So let me give you an example. I remember sitting down with a couple a few years ago 
and they were sleeping together. They were sleeping together early on through their whole relationship. And I said, listen, not only is it unbiblical, but it's not a great idea. So here's what I want you to do. I won't marry you unless you move out and you don't sleep with each other. I want to meet in another month and you guys do not sleep together for a month. Then we're going to talk. We sat down the next month and they went, yeah, we're not going to get married. I said, you're not going to get married? Really? How come? Which I kind of expected. Uh, how come? Oh, we've just been fighting nonstop. Yeah. I go, tell me more. That's crazy. I had no idea that was going to happen. Yeah. Well, you know what I mean? Before we'd fight and then we'd just have sex and it was fine, you know, but now we can't have sex. And so it's like, oh, we're always at each other. Oh, because what happens is when you bring the sex uh, and the sexual um, uh, the, the sex into a relationship, what happens is it ends up covering all the mess that you guys won't deal with. And now when the sex is removed and you really are exposing the relationship for what is, I call it a relational fog. It brings this fog into a relationship in which you can't see each other for who you really are. And then when you stop having sex, you start to see, oh, here's who you are. You're not just good looking naked. Like you are kind of a, oh, there's a lot. Of, okay, all right. So now I'm going to have to really deal with this. Because let's be honest, guys. We can deal with a lot as long as we're getting sex. But as soon as that stops, now we're starting to go, well, I don't have this anymore. And so now I have to be confronted with the reality of the situation. And so we got to then start working through the process of, okay, now that we're not having sex anymore, we get to deal with the real stuff. We're not, we're not uh, self-medicating through sex anymore. Now we're going to have to really work through and do the, the tough relational things. Sex is uh, designed for giving and serving within this covenant. And so if sex is for this covenant relationship, this committed, intimate relationship where we can be vulnerable and safe, the opposite, and I think the clearest example of this, the opposite would be something like pornography and masturbation. Because sex is seen as a consumer good within our society, something that is totally selfish, self-serving, it's an addiction and it's a fantasy. Pornography and, and masturbation uh, fit those to a T. Is it's all about me, it's all about my pleasure, it's all about what I want. Instead of sex being about the other, instead of it being about being vulnerable to another, instead of being full life disclosure to somebody else, it's all about me, my needs, what I want, and my fantasies. And this is why the scripture has been saying for so long, guys, pornography, lust, masturbation, these things are going to end up destroying you. Because ladies, here's the truth. And this isn't just a, a guy thing, but it's a majority guy thing, is he now has this image of how you should be and how you should look, and you will never live up to it because it's a fantasy. It's not real. And so marriages and relationships start breaking down because it's like, well, here's the movies that I was watching, and that's not the reality. And so now we have this conflict. Or the other thing that happens is now guys have a decreased desire to be intimate with their spouse because the fantasy is so much better. I can go and I can watch and I can get what I want and I can do what I want without having to deal with, um, without having to deal with my wife. The other thing that science is telling us is that it is actually rewiring your brain, that your brain is changing as you watch pornography. And so pornography is just one example of how consumer sex ends up destroying us. And so the ethic of the, uh, for the Bible as far as sex goes is you must not do with your body what you are not willing to do with your whole life. If you are unwilling to commit every part of your life to somebody, then you cannot 
Just isolate the physical and commit that one, one aspect. It's either all or nothing. And so since sex was created for whole life giving and in full disclosure and it's a, a sacred covenant, um, it's no surprise that when we partake in this, outside of the context of marriage, it might be fun for a while, but ultimately it's pretty unfulfilling. We end up being pretty unsatisfied by the end of the day. It, we may be satisfied in the moment. It's fun for a season. And yet, if you've ever talked to someone who has been pretty promiscuous, if you ask them, were you ever satisfied? Did you ever feel complete? Did you ever get to that place where you went, yes, I feel great? They would say no. Because here's the reality. It's like any other drug. Once you have a little bit, you need a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more. And it's this unquenching thirst that you have, which it's just this becomes. So uh, here's, here's my version of it, is I love food. I love to eat food. And I have realized um, whenever I start eating a lot, it's not that now I'm satisfied for longer. It's just I can eat more next time, and then more, and then more, and my appetite grows bigger and bigger and bigger. That's the same thing with sex outside of a covenant relationship. It's something that you just desire more and more and you're never satisfied. It's kind of like being stranded on an island and you have nothing to drink except there's water everywhere. You can never fully quench your thirst. C.S. Lewis says this. He has a great example of um, what our culture looks like when it comes to sex. He says, you know that our obsession with sex is out of control. If you just changed it and you maybe made it something else like this. Let's imagine that all of us, we were able to get into a rocket ship and we went to another planet that was just like Earth. And so we landed on it and we get out and we start looking around and we go, okay, this is cool. This looks pretty familiar, except the only difference is on all the billboards and the TV channels and the movies and the songs, instead of it talking about sex like we do here, they're talking about cheeseburgers, right? Every billboard is somebody just, mmm, oh, Right? And you turn on the TV and there's like, mm, I love you, cheeseburger, baby. Mm, right? And there's movies about cheeseburgers and everybody's just all about cheeseburgers and every, everybody's obsessed with cheeseburgers. You would say this culture has something wrong with them. They have a bizarre obsession, an unhealthy obsession with cheeseburgers. What's wrong with them? He says, now imagine that those same people came to earth. What do you think that they would see? They would say, these people have a very unhealthy obsession with sex. What is wrong with them? Their whole culture is just about sex. There seems to be something wrong. There seems to be an unhealthy obsession here. And so ultimately, the consequences of using sex outside of this covenant relationship is that something is going to break, something's going to die. This is always the consequence of sin, is whenever we use something the way that it was not designed to be used by God, there will be consequences, right? And this is not just true of sex. This is true of every arena of our life. So when God says, I made your body in a certain way, and here's how it operates best, and then we go and we just eat junk food nonstop all day, every day, there's consequences. Just like with our finances and our relationships, if we don't use them appropriately, something's going to break. Maybe a relationship dies. Same thing is true with sex, is if we misuse this incredible gift, something's going to end up breaking. And oftentimes, that's regret. That's where we have shame. That's where we can no longer uh, connect in our relationships, where we seem to be unable to be vulnerable any longer. And so for some of us, this has been something that um, as I talk through this, you go, I've already made those mistakes, and so now what do I do? Right? In fact, a large majority of people within our culture, this is going to be them. 
I've already made those mistakes. I've already screwed up. I've already, have I ruined it? Is it over? The good news is, no, of course not. But there's going to be a couple things that are going to need to happen. Is one, you're, you're going to have to stop doing what you're doing, right? It's kind of like a drug addict. Can you recover? Yes, but you got to stop first. You can't, you can't enter into recovery until we stop doing whatever this destructive behavior is. So that's the first thing. The other thing is, well, what do I do about me and God? Right? Because there's clearly been this, this gap between God and I because of my lifestyle and my choices and some of the things I've been doing. And, and the good news is that there is nothing that you can do or have done that is going to separate you from God. That God hung out with sinners. These people were prostitutes and pimps and drug dealers. And he would go to their house. He would hang out with them. And he would say, look, I love you. Stop what you're doing and follow me. And see, that's, that's the good news is we follow a God who says, you know what? You're never too far gone for me to redeem you. And so if that is a place that you're in, let me give you just a real couple practical tips. And this is something that I struggled with when I was a teenager is I would struggle with guilt and shame and just, oh, I just felt horrible and I'd have nightmares about decisions I've made. And, and my dad said this, he says, every time that you revisit the poor decisions that you've made, you're telling God that his sacrifice was not enough for you. That oh, I can't give that to you because I need to hold on to it. Because that shame, the thing that I've done, those decisions that I've made, those are too big for you, God. And so let me hold back some of those and feel bad about it. He goes, look, if God has taken care of it, it's done. Leave it. Let him take it away. And so if that is you and you're like, man, I've made those mistakes. Look, all you got to do is you go, all right, I'm repenting. That means I'm stopping what I'm doing. I'm turning away. Confess those things. Try it. Um, go home tonight. It's going to be a fun exercise where you go, God, I screwed up and here's how. And then once you've done that, now leave it. It's done. It says that he has thrown it into the deepest seas. And so you can walk out without shame, without guilt. And in the coming weeks, what we're going to talk about is maybe some real practical steps of how we can, going forward, um, change our lifestyle a little bit. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for um, what a good God you are, and what an incredible gift that sex and marriage and our, our sexuality and gender and all these things that seem to bring so much confusion are actually an incredible gift, Lord God, if we use it uh, correctly. And so, Lord God, so many of us, um, we have gone our own way. We have tried to use these things according to our will instead of yours. And we, we need forgiveness for that, Lord God. We need to be healed of those mistakes and some of that shame. And we believe that you have something better for us. And so, Lord God, we are excited to see what that is and what you have planned for each and every one of us. Lord, we love you. We thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen.